uh, welcome back to uh, Political D. We're going to be a COVID-free zone today. Uh, I think we'll leave that for another day. Want instead to maybe look at uh, something that is uh, developing in terms of British government uh, policy announcements, uh, and indeed, I think we can probably put into uh, elements of of announcements by by, by Stormont as well. And that is uh, declaring an approach to a topic um, without actually providing much detail. So saying, this is how we're going to approach this. Uh, what do you think? So it's a sort of a, a quasi um, consultation process, I think, if, if, if that would be fair to say. And we've seen two of them recently. One is on the Northern Ireland Protocol within the uh, EU negotiations. Uh, and the second one was on legacy uh, from Brandon Lewis. On the, the protocol approach, the idea of minimizing the impact of the protocol it sounds good, but I think there's two issues maybe to discuss. One is that it lacks detail, and those details are important. Uh, and secondly, that there seems to be a fundamental flaw in that approach, in that there are two sovereignties uh, at the heart of this, EU and UK, and I'm not quite sure how we can reconcile them. Maybe we can start just by looking at the detail uh, because I think you wrote a, an article in CapEx recently and said there are, are, are some uh, significant issues on detail that will need to be resolved. Yes, and um, it, it's, it's an approach document. I think they described it as a command document, which is a term that I was not familiar with, I have to confess. But it was something between a kind of negotiation, a negotiating position document and a kind of a justification of the government's policy in, in signing the withdrawal agreement. But it started off from this premise, really, that uh, there wasn't going to be a border, or there wasn't going to be an international border, um, the document uh, specified. But, you know, I, I don't think that anybody at any point has ever suggested that there'll be an international border no. in the Irish Sea. There were a number of, of uh, sort of issues that it broached where it didn't set out the detail of how things were going to be mitigated. We talked about the expanded infrastructure to check animals and food, which was depicted as a kind of a modest extension of the existing arrangements. But it does involve, you know, creating these sort of EU designated border control posts, as, as, they're, as they're called. And the document didn't really specify how products destined for supermarkets would be treated, how they would be exempted from um, this uh, sort of process of checks because an awful lot of the, um, the, the freight that moves across the Irish Sea is destined for big supermarket chains in Northern Ireland. So will all of that stuff have to be sub subject to, to checks or not? It wasn't really clear. Um, we also know that Northern Ireland will still be bound by single market rules while the rest of uh, the country won't. So, I mean, the document talked about risk assessment, assessing the risk of, of uh, goods coming onto the, the EU market uh, and not meeting their regulations, but it didn't really go into any detail about what will happen if um, regulations in Great Britain don't match EU regulations over a period of time. Are we then into a kind of a situation where uh, a product is okay to be taken to the great british market but it's not okay to come to the northern irish market i mean those those are two um sort of fairly substantial issues just to start with really i think the eu have been slightly caught uh, by 
the British approach, which, which almost goes back to where before even negotiations started, the British had laid out an approach that said, largely speaking, 80% of goods that go across the, 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 the Irish border are of no consequence. You know? and, and I think there's this downplaying of, of risk in terms of what matters. And the, the big companies basically treat um, customs standards, uh, VAT, as, a, as an accounting issue rather than actually a, a, a matter of, of trading in, in, or, or a market issue as such. Uh, they, they simply uh, can adapt very quickly because of their systems. I think it comes back to small businesses, um, uh, retailers and consumers and how it's going to impact them. And that's really not very clear um, from, the, from the document. Uh, I think there's two different levels. One, as you say, in terms of uh, supermarket goods, what's the risk? And then, of course, small businesses, uh, because it really is unclear in terms of declarations, uh, let's use, just use the term declaration rather than um, customs forms or anything, but even declarations, would small businesses that maybe sell through Amazon or sell singularly, I, I buy jam pots, uh, first jam of all things, uh, uh, from uh, Wares of Nutsford. Uh, I'll give them a free, a free uh, plug here. And I'll buy sort of 100, 180 at a time or whatever, uh, which does me a year or two. Um, but, you know, will that, I may be their only customer in Northern Ireland, will they get into a whole, uh, process of accommodating me as a single customer in Northern Ireland if they have to fill out forms, if the VAT declarations are different, if, if, if there are going to be changes at some point in the future. And I haven't an answer to that. And I don't think the government has an answer to that either. The approach is clever in that what they will ultimately say to the EU is, we don't believe this is at risk. You prove it's going to be a risk to the single market. This can't be an absolute thing. So if someone in Asda, Straban or Enniskillen uh, wants to buy a, a toilet roll, which is slightly di different regulatory standard between the UK and, and uh, the EU, uh, is the entire EU single market at risk if someone takes a packet of that toilet roll over to Lifford or, or down into Cavan? Uh, I really can't see how that would be a risk, but the EU in an absolute sense is most likely to say it is a risk and therefore they have to therefore have the forms and everything to cover. Well, that's right because the British government was setting out an interpretation or an argument. And so, I mean, at the start of the document, you had a lot of material really emphasizing the importance of Northern Ireland's place in the UK internal market and, you know, comparing that to our, our trade with the EU and the Republic of Ireland and pointing out that our economy is really dependent on this link with Great Britain and that, that the frictions there have to be minimised in order to keep our economy moving. But I fear that what you'll find when we get into negotiations over this, I mean, those are probably ongoing already, is that the EU will just keep coming back to the letter of the withdrawal agreement. And the problem is that, you know, we have signed up to that now so there is a tension there can we interpret it in a way that is beneficial to our economy that, that minimizes the, the problems or will the eu get its way in, in taking a very kind of strict interpretation of some of yeah, these i think one, one of the points that again you picked up in the capex article um, that people really haven't noted is is that the government the british government is being very, very keen because it wants to be seen to be doing everything right has sort of said oh yeah well you know the the um, 
the Equalities Commission and the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission will, of course, be able to oversee this. But I, I think you picked up a really uh, good um, uh, quote, or uh, yeah, a quote uh, from Dominic Grieve, um, who isn't exactly a Brexiteer, um, who, when he was asked regarding a commentator who described the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission as a quasi-political pressure group campaigning for a maximalist interpretation of rights, uh, which includes handling, handing responsibility for socioeconomic policy to the ju judiciary. Uh, Dominic Grieve said it was hard to disagree with that statement. And of course, the Bill of Rights that was first proposed for Northern Ireland was something that would have uh, sat happily within uh, a people's democracy manifesto circa 1969. Uh, but you know, th th there's that big risk of massive lawfare coming out of this to try and pull back economic rights into the into the public sphere in Northern Ireland. Well, uh, yeah. Full disclosure, David, the, the commentator that Dominic Grieve was quoting in that speech was actually me. But oh, right. uh, <laughs> Very I, suppose, good. I suppose I should clear that up in in, in case it looks like um, you know I'm, I'm, I'm trying to use a, a dishonest argument or something there. But the, that was the case. He was quoting an article that I'd written. Um, but yes, I mean, the, <laughs> I, I, I get nervous whenever I see the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission involved in anything. I mean, it, it, <laughs> they just embroiled themselves in the whole. Um, Emma D'Souza thing uh, recently and, and not with any um, great distinction. And yes, they, they, they seem to have this oversight role in terms of holding the UK to its commitment to maintain EU citizens' rights. And, you know, in, in a sense, there's no difficulty with that concept, but we've yeah. seen how the, the NIHRC take a, a concept or, or a remit and try and expand it and yeah. sort of do it for self-aggrandizing reasons as well it's almost you know we're important and we um and we need a role in this so i think that's a, a dangerous and um potentially damaging part of the document that nobody's really drawn attention to as as up to now yeah i, th I think the, the the biggest legal issue i think is going to be a matter which has been picked up in the in the uk media just ever just on the fringes i think which is one of the fundamentals here is a is a clash of sovereignties because what the mm. protocol does is leave the single market as a matter of the sovereignty of the EU um, in, in, in matters uh, relating to the single market and of course the UK sovereign in matters relating to customs union uh, and those two things aren't that compatible so you know whatever happens in there there's gonna you know, it, it's not a comfortable place to be um, no, and, if you're trying to to reconcile those, and we know how combustible um, matters of sovereignty can be in Northern Ireland, and, and in all honesty, it's extraordinary that we're even at this place where we're discussing that we're we're discussing how to minimise the impact of a major economic divide in in the UK. The only thing that I will say is, in terms of public opinion and, and that kind of thing, once you see. And you touched upon it earlier, once you see people walking into their local Tesco's unable to get a particular item um, because there are distribution problems across the RSC or, or maybe just paying a lot more for the item than, than people in um, you know, Preston or Manchester or whatever will be paying. And once people start to go on to Amazon and find that they can't get goods shipped to Northern Ireland because um, distributors have just 
given up on that because there's extra paperwork and everything else, then maybe this kind of attitude, though, that we're getting the best of both worlds and that um, staying within the EU's orbit is a benefit to Northern Ireland, maybe people's views on that will change because that's not at a kind of business level or a macro level. It's not yeah, big um, uh, processors, big businesses. That's just people on the street having uh, seeing what a, an impact it can have on their pocket and on their lifestyle. The summary on, on the approach uh, to the Northern Ireland Protocol is, well, it's a nice idea, but we're going to have to see how it all works out. Uh, if, if the British government can do what it wants to uh, set out to achieve, great. Uh, at least it's not as bad as what it could have been, but it's still not a, a good place to be. And again, taking this, this approach to approaches, uh, the British government also has brought out some uh, notes on legacy, uh, which I think kind of conflates Stormhouse Agreement with some moves, particularly in Westminster, to, to create some sort of statute of limitations in terms of actions by uh, government in, in Northern Ireland. But that's proposals coming down the line, and maybe we can revisit that another day, because I think it's a topic that we might take as a, as a subject in itself. Yeah. Uh, but I think we, ha- we, can only, we can look at, at the, the current pensions uh, discussion, uh, going on with Sinn Féin, and uh, I think there's there's possibly two issues there. One, the legislation's already in place mm. for these pensions. Um, the the agreement of the new decade, new approach, everybody had agreed that that pensions legislation was as what it was. And all of a sudden, we find Sinn Féin saying, yeah, but we don't want that. First, uh, there's the issue of when is agreement an agreement? With Sinn Féin, it never seems to be. Uh, it, it's a never-ending process. And the second thing is uh, in terms of the finance aspect, and that is they're, they're talking about how much, nobody knows how much it's going to cost, but we wouldn't know whether we could afford it because we still haven't had a budget out of Conor Murphy yet, um, which yes. is, is becoming a real, a real problem going forward. Yeah, but I mean, it was a uh, kind of an archetypal piece of Sinn Féin behavior, really, because we first um, saw this row blowing up a few weeks ago and, and the issue at stake seemed to be who was paying, which, of course, should have been something that was nailed down in the New Decade, New Approach document yeah. anyway. But uh, as usual, you know, we come out of that. We've got all these projects and, and promises, but how do we pay for them? We haven't got a clue. Um, now the issue is who's being paid. We've, we've basically cleared away all the nonsense and we've discovered that um, it's being held up because Sinn Féin want the people who uh, blew, blew people up and, and bombed and, and, and got uh, hurt at, the, at their own hands to be paid out of this. Um, well, this I, yeah, I, think, I think that's true to some extent, but I, I, I read yesterday, I think it was a, an article of a, a case where each block protester was claiming that he had got cancer because of chemicals used to, to, to basically cleanse the walls of his own uh, excrement. You know, whilst we're talking here about people maybe getting hurt in, 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 uh, you know, by taking a bomb into a, into a chip shop, um, you know, I think we can also say that there is every room for the Republican Lawfare Department uh, to basically get their, get their hands into um, all sorts of different claims in terms of what is actually pensionable. The, the thing that is most annoying about media is they're making this out to be an argument between the parties at Stormont, yeah. which it's not. 
it's the it's the it's the singular focus of Sinn Féin on itself and its own that is blocking everything and we've seen that right along you know from COVID from but but this isn't anything new this is how Sinn Féin have worked and they're working themselves up into a new crisis almost uh, because once again um, there is no budget you know, Conor Murphy is shouting about departments running out of money by uh, July that is not because there isn't any money that's because they haven't set a budget and therefore they cannot legally spend any more money that's a completely different issue than as presented by Mr Murphy yes it all comes back to that doesn't it and I know that we've been in a, in a difficult period and it would be a difficult thing to um to to draft up at this time in, in any circumstances but it, it's got to be done eventually and as we get back to some form of normality the, the question will linger why hasn't it been done what work has been at least what work has been done to um to to, to get a budget on the table and uh, if none has been done why but a substantial part of any budget is day-to-day yeah you know, the, the stuff that you would spend regardless not including extra so you know they've been able to announce pay increases for school teachers for example um they've been able to announce all sort of additional packages well against what you know what what baseline is there there in terms of understanding the forward costs and expenses of that and we were promised open and transparency but if you don't have a budget you cannot possibly make a judgment on whether that expenditure is affordable or not. And I, I don't understand either why, again, many in the press aren't pushing this harder. Um, you know, and I know we've got a, 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 a contract, but that hasn't stopped the British government bringing in a finance bill through Parliament. Well, that, it brings you back to the sort of power uh, without responsibility that is inherent in devolution and is particularly inherent in devolution in Northern Ireland because all of the Stormont ministers um, like doing popular things like giving out money for this, that and the other thing. But when it comes to showing where that money's coming from, where when it comes to showing the other side of the balance sheet, we never hear about, um, we never hear about what's happening there unless it's just to blame the government for not providing ever more money, ever yeah. greater quantities of that. I, I think I, I think maybe we, we need to bring this to a close, but just just to to bring a point, I think there was a paper produced by uh, Graham Brownlow of Queens and Esmond Burney of, of University of Ulster, and I think the closing uh, statement was essentially that whatever the issues in terms of the Northern Ireland economy, these have all been existing before COVID and before Brexit. You know, these are long-standing issues that, given that we haven't had a budget since 2016, these really do lie at, you know, the, the, the fundamentals of our economy lie at the door of an assembly and parties in government that have not delivered for many years. Well, you can't say fairer than that. That's an absolutely accurate assessment. And, um, you know, you would like to think that maybe coming out of this crisis and looking ahead to... The withdrawal, agree, uh, the, the protocol, and everything else that um, you know our politicians be drafting up a plan as to how we exploit this as best we can, how we boost productivity, how we get the economy going, how we get the private sector um, back up and running. But you know, do we have any confidence in that 
we'll leave that question hanging maybe. Let's leave that for another day. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Owen. Okay, thank you, David. Cheers.